Anything with Black Podcast, episode number 23. As I sit here editing this podcast, we're rolling into the Thanksgiving holiday, Black Friday to follow, Christmas, the end of the year. If we're lucky, the solar flare won't wipe us all out, or at least wipe out our information technology. One of the more significant reasons why I hope we don't get wiped out is because in January, Decibel will be celebrating its 100th issue. There'll be a huge show down in Philly featuring uh, Tombs, which is my band, Repulsion, Evoking, Municipal Waste, Pig Destroyer, and Converge. So it should be a good time. Which leads me to our next guest, Albert Mudrian, the editor-in-chief of Decibel Magazine. Decibel is one of the few remaining extreme metal magazines. Somehow they lasted all these years, outlasted Rip, Metal Maniacs, and a slew of other magazines that have fallen to the wayside of poor readership and, I guess, general illiteracy in this country. Anyway, here we go with Albert. So, Albert, you've been uh, editor-in-chief of Decibel Magazine for how many years now? Uh, let's see, summer of 2004, so it's about eight and a half years. Eight and a half years. And uh, in my opinion, Decibel is probably one of the only uh, real magazines that covers um, extreme music the way that you guys do. It's, it's very different than, say, for example, some of your competitors like Revolver, who appear to... Uh, you know, go into the more uh, common denominator aspects of uh, extreme music and, you know, so I mean, you guys are sort of championing the cause of like the underground and whatnot. So, you know, I got just got to give you guys props as uh, for, for doing that. Thanks, man. That's, that's definitely flattering. Um, and that was, that was the idea behind this, you know, it was, it was, we didn't go into this thinking that we could make some kind of huge magazine that would be on the racks at every 7-Eleven in the country. We just, you know, I, I looked at the landscape of magazines in America, metal magazines in America, and just saw something that, uh, just a huge void for something that would be um, fun and, you know, irreverent, but at the same time authoritative and being able to kind of take things seriously at the right time but at the same time being self-aware enough to recognize um, how sometimes funny things are in our little world. So, you know, that was that was the goal, and I'm glad that, you know, I'm glad that you kind of appreciate that that's what, what we're trying to do. Now, a big milestone's coming up for you guys, um, issue 100. Yes. So have, have, did you think you'd make it this long? <sighs> Uh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> um, I guess it's like it's kind of a two-prong question. Number one, did I think uh, the magazine would make it this long, and did I think I would make it this long? <laughs> um, but I guess, yeah, I guess I did, you know, only because I, I believed in it from the start, and I felt that we were doing something good that nobody else was doing, and I guess I thought that as long as I never stopped working, it could be successful. Um, and, you know, that, that, that has pretty much been the case. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's kind of funny. Uh, I was just thinking about this recently. because I, I'm going to write, uh, I guess you could call it a, a retrospective piece in issue 100. I just want to talk a little bit about 
you know, how it started, where we came from, talk about some funny anecdotes around along the way that maybe people don't know about. But I distinctly remember uh, as issue number one was going to print, we were working on the spine. Just there's a, there's very there's just a few words of text that's on, that's on the spine for issue one, and I typed it in. I, I typed in issue number zero zero one, which you know I just thought like, well, what the hell? Might as well aim high, you know. And I don't I don't know if I at that moment I really believed we would ever get to hundred issues, but it was just putting it out there like that in the hopes that well, if we if, if we say it, maybe it'll actually come through. I guess it was like some kind of Oprah thinking. I don't know. Well, do you think you did? You think that you personally would make it to issue one hundred? <laughs> there are times that <laughs> there's times I'm still not sure that I will. We're not there yet. Um, you know, it, it, being as you yourself know, being an independent artist, it's, it's really hard at times to feel like that you have the support of that, that you have a good infrastructure and that you have a support network and that you can. You can accomplish everything that you actually want to do, and you know, in your case, you're with Relapse Records, who are a good indie. In my case, I'm with Red Flag Media, who is a good indie. And together, it's, it's the kind of thing that I think that you, you look at it as you're building something together, but at the same time, you you really want to you really want to have as much attention drawn to what you're doing as possible, at least from the people that you're working with. Like, obviously, you want Relapse to be dedicated to tunes, and I want Rayflay Media to be dedicated to Decibel. And at times, you know, at times we're, we're both not the number one priority. Um, so it's definitely the kind of thing where I think you, you kind of have to get over yourself sometimes, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, and maybe, maybe some... Sometimes along the way, maybe like 2007, 2008, I needed to get over myself. Um, and now I feel like, <clears throat> I feel like, yeah, I, I will go as far as decibel goes, if that makes any sense. Like, like I don't, I don't ever imagine stepping down from running decibel. Um, and I guess we're simply removed in a hostile takeover and coup. <laughs> so it's always possible going on. But yeah, I guess now now I can see I, I can see 100 and beyond. I don't know how much beyond. I don't want to look that far beyond. I just want to kind of continue to push the proverbial rock up the hill with this magazine and, and do exciting things and get people jazzed on the music that you know has, has played such a huge role in my life. Now, prior to uh, Decibel, what was your background? Um, like what? You know, what else? Do you, what were you doing prior to to this magazine? Well, the company that produces Decibel, I've worked for for over fifteen years now, and I used to edit another music magazine that we did, which was kind of like uh, I'm sure older listeners will recall Tower Records, and within Tower Records, their their free music magazine Pulse. It was kind of like that. It was a general audience magazine. So there was a lot of like pop music, uh, a lot of indie rock, uh, some hip hop, and a metal section, which I curated, which I curated probably obsessively at times. Um, so I did that. I ran that publication 
between 1997 to 2003, 2004, right before Dustin got off the ground. So I had managed to make a lot of friends in the in the metal world that way because it was a general audience magazine that actually wrote about you know bands like Morticia. Um, but you know, that kind of that kind of helped me develop my voice and my style as well as get acquainted with some people within the industry. Uh, and then also in 2002, simultaneously I was working on uh, my book Choosing Death, uh, which is the history of death metal and grindcore. And that also led me kind of further into, uh, I guess, into more personal relationships with a lot of a lot of the artists in that scene which I think also helped lay a lot of the groundwork for Decibel out of the gate. You know, it gave me access to, uh, it gave me very close access to bands like Epigates or Carcass or Napalm Death, in which case, like, you know, somebody else maybe kind of starting a magazine that was out of nowhere, like Decibel started, they wouldn't have that kind of opportunity or that access. Choosing Death came out that long ago, wow. Came out in 2004, yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, I don't want to announce anything just yet, but the 10-year anniversary is coming up, and it'll be here before I know it, unfortunately. But there is something pretty cool planned for the 10-year anniversary of Chief Death. So something to look forward to, but at the same time, something that I need to find time to actually accomplish. Yeah. Wow, man. So there's another teaser that everyone's yes. going to be on their, their edge of their seats waiting to find <laughs> out what this thing is. <laughs> is it a show? Is it like, what is it? What kind of thing is it? Um, there, might, there might be a show attached to it. Um, there might be more print attached to it. Yeah. I don't want to give too much away, but there'll be, there'll be something there'll be something choosing death related in 2014 that, that'll be cool to look forward to. And that's it. That's all you're going to say. <laughs> you're getting more than anybody else. This is yeah. a scoop, dude. <laughs> any, any more, uh, you know, any related, like, book projects in the works for you? Like, you know, not, not specifically, uh, you know, related to Choosing Death, like any other kind of, uh, you know, book material that we be, you know, waiting for you, from you? Well, I mean, there's something related to Decibel in that uh, our writer, Adam Tepidellin, who does our beer column, is, is pretty much just finalizing a book deal to a book's worth of those columns expanded. Like, the name of the column is Brutal Truth, B-R-E-W-T-A-L, and it's basically, it connects beer culture to metal culture and talks about lots of independent microbrewing, uh, independent microbrewers, uh, craft brewers, that kind of thing, and oftentimes finds like metal people who work there, finds uh, metal fans who uh, have craft their own beers, you know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, and we're just kind of blowing it up a little bit into a book, which... I get the sense, I mean, it's still really early, though, I don't even think that he's dried on any of the contracts yet, but I, I get the sense that it's probably more of like a coffee table kind of book rather than like a, a heavy text tome like Choosing Death or like our other Decibel Hall of Fame book, Precious Metal, was. Um, so it's, 
it's cool. It'll be, um, I don't know when it's coming out, but, you know, I, and I'm not going to, you know, it's going to be Adam's project, but it, as far as decibel-related books go, that's the next thing that's on the plate. Uh, I know that about, I don't know, about two years ago, I had an idea about doing basically a decibel book for the 100th issue, um, which... Uh, didn't happen, uh, <laughs> but it would have been kind of again like a like a because you know we collect all this weird ephemera over the uh, the course of the magazine these interesting stories that don't really make it into print or like these these weird outtake photos and this stuff that just doesn't fit in the magazine but it's kind of interesting in terms of interesting in its own context and uh, I thought that it would be fun to do a coffee table book but. You know, never, I just didn't have the time to do it. Maybe for our 10th anniversary or something. You know, I'm just, look, I'm just looking for those kind of mile markers uh, in our history to introduce things like that. So, or maybe it's issue 200. You know. Well, let's not look that far down the line, man. That might be the next window of opportunity, unfortunately. So, so back to the, uh, the sort of genesis of Decibel. So, you got this gig, you're working at Pulse, and. Well, I didn't, I didn't work at Pulse. Oh, you're editing it. I, I was just I was just comparing the the magazine that that we did to kind of a we basically like an indie indie music store version of Pulse. Oh, I got distributed you. at a bunch of regional indie stores. Okay, so you're doing this gig, and then just the idea just sort of builds from you know just sort of daydreaming at work every day, and you know thinking about hey man, I really would love to do something like this, and then actualizing that because that's something that's really interesting to me in general is how people manifest some of these ideas that they have, you know, whereas, you know, cause there's that sort of connection to the pool of ideas that it doesn't exist. And then you sort of channel that idea and then suddenly you're holding something in your hands, like a magazine or a record or a painting or something like that. So, so what were the, what was sort of the process for you to manifest this, this magazine and, you know, thus creating this hundred issue, um, you know, legacy that you, you're working on right now? Uh, you know, it, it's an interesting process that was born out of... Uh, it was born out of a, a creative desire, but also, in a lot of ways, I think that there was... We were very cognizant of a commercial opportunity. Um, because the way the Red Flag Media was structured at the time, the magazine that we did, that, that independent magazine, which went through a bunch of different names, of course, and it was often beholden to the whims of these independent record store owners who would want to change things up. Uh, and unfortunately, that was the, the crux of our problems with it, because we did not have 100% control over this thing. There were other people always... Um, trying to offer their own input. And sometimes it was good, oftentimes it was not. Um, and you just felt like, at least I felt like that, that if I had if I had the opportunity to do something unfettered that nobody else really had a say in, it was just completely my vision that I could do a cool magazine. And that was just any magazine in general. I thought it would be fun to do that. But more specifically, my true passion in terms of music was underground metal. So my thought was, wow, well, you know, not only, you know, if we did a magazine, I could do an underground metal magazine really well, at least I hope. And um, 
was something that our publisher recognized. Like, we didn't have a newsstand publication. You know, we, we didn't, what we were doing was we were producing a magazine that just kind of went in independent record stores and was handed out for free by record store clerks, which is a cool thing, but it's the kind of thing you never hear any feedback from. You would never get a letter. Like, you could put these things out into the world and you could print like a hundred thousand of them and never hear a, a, a fucking peep about them. So, I guess we felt, <laughs> this is going to sound horrible, but we, we thought we were uh, smart, funny geniuses, but no one would ever recognize that and tell us, so we thought, well, let's, let's, let's see if we can prove it to the world that we actually are. Um, and I, it was kind of a motivating factor, uh, more so, the changing state of the industry for our publisher. Because this was, Decimal was launched in 2004, just after, uh, especially the mid-level chains that we dealt with, that we dealt with. They weren't necessarily specialty stores, you know, like a, like a vintage vinyl or something, like that was one of one. It would be more like a 10 store chain in, uh, Northeast PA or Minnesota or some, just to some region where the stores were okay, but maybe they didn't have enough personality, maybe they didn't have enough deep catalog to differentiate themselves from uh, the record store buyer who would happily just go to Best Buy and pay $9.99 for a CD. wasn't really looking for the record store experience. So all that was happening. We kind of looked at the future and, you know, again, I knew I wanted to do this. And my publisher saw, like, well, this makes sense in a business, in terms of a in terms of a business decision, having some kind of fallback if these independent record stores continue to erode and these these uh, in store magazines we're doing, some of them get smaller and smaller and less profitable. So uh, it was kind of an interesting convergence of things, of, of creative and commercial. Like, I knew I wanted to do this. I knew I had it in me. And the publisher, uh, Alex, um, he he knew I could do it, but he also, you know, it, it worked out nicely because he knew I could do it. It was a good opportunity for the company, and it was also, like I spoke of earlier, a niche. It was a void that was waiting to be filled. Uh, so there was a lot of talk about it for probably, I don't know, uh, almost a year uh, because I was all. At the, as Decibel was getting was, was ready to launch, I was finishing Choosing Death, trying to get that off my plate and get that out. Um, so that was like occupying a lot of my time. Um, and once that was kind of done and clear, I, I feel like I was able to refocus and commit to figuring out how to launch this magazine. Which was, you know, in, in 2004, I guess that's probably the last window for launching, launching a metal magazine, honestly, uh, uh, just because the, the market was shifting so much and, and obviously uh, labels were contracting, record sales were going down. So you needed to, you know, when I was, we created a prototype that we sent around to um, probably about 300 industry people, a lot of label people, some band friends, things like that. And it was just me and Nick Terry, uh, who was the old editor of Terrorizer, and also 
a, um, a good friend and early contributor to Decibel at that time, it was basically just a collection of our writing. There's probably 32 pages of just like his features, my reviews, my reviews, his features, and that's it. And um, we sent that out to the world, and at least our little part of the world, and the reaction was really positive. And I don't know how much of it was due to the fact that you know people knew me from the work that I was doing on these independent publications. Some people knew me from the work I did with Choosing Death. Uh, but it was, a, it was a positive response, and people supported Decibel out of the gate. At least the, the advertisers did. Um, so that that really allowed us to to kind of to get early footing and get off the ground. Um, so so I guess that that's pretty much like that's how we got moving to start. Um, and get issue one out, and and also it was one of those things where it was like do everything yourself. You know, I sold and still do. I still sell all the ads in the magazine. Uh, I'm the editor in chief. I do all the marketing, um, all the online stuff like the Facebook posts, the Twitter stuff. And our our managing editor Andrew Bonazelli does a lot of that stuff too. But it's just he and I. You know, we're a we're a we're a small organization. There's not a lot of people that work on Decibel. Uh, so it just became one of those things where we started doing it from the beginning and we we would attempt along the way to kind of hire out. Like, we went through two or three different ad sales people and, you know, each time pulled the plug on it because it was like, you know, I could do this better or I can do this more efficiently for the company. Uh, so it, it became a lesson in... Figuring out how to multitask, figuring out how to maintain uh, a sense of integrity and not be covered in ick every day while trying to sell advertising and also direct it from the editorial and making sure that those things are always separate. And a lot of times, uh, a lot of the people that I was dealing with, especially in the beginning, had a very difficult time grasping that concept that those can be mutually exclusive things. But um, but yeah, that's that's. That's pretty much the genesis. Has it been the same the same core people involved from day one, basically? Uh, I've been there from day one. Um, our publishing thing from day one. Um, our managing editor Andrew, I believe he came in issue six, so he's been there almost since day one. We've got at least at least half a dozen contributors, probably more, who have been in every single issue since day one. People like Jay Bennett, people like Nick Green, people like Rod Smith, they're in, they've been there since the beginning and they're still there. Kevin Stewart Panko is another one. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, the core, I mean, there's been ancillary moves over the years, but the core has remained the same. Yeah, these days with, you know, print publications sort of, I mean, I think that in the U.S. at least, you guys are pretty much the only ones really left, like, covering that sort of niche in, in extreme music. You know, like, yeah. Metal, Metal Maniacs is gone, you know, Rip. You know, so it's pretty much, I can't really think, well, you know, there's, like, more, like, obscure, like, the guy, the guy who was doing that S.O.D. magazine, I think he has, like, a new, a new zine, you know, but that's, more like on the sort of DIY like fan level, you know. Yeah, no, and, and I think that there's I, anybody who's still doing the zines 
my hero, man. I mean, that's a, that's even even at the height of zine popularity in the late '80s and early '90s, it was still something that you were almost certainly going to lose money. So to be doing it like this, in this day and age, in the climate and the culture that's out there, is, is commendable and awesome. Um, but as far as yeah, other newsstand metal magazines go, I mean. There's there's some stuff that's out there, uh, but I don't feel like there's anything you know, especially in America. And, and honestly, I, in, in the world, as far as I'm concerned, that kind of takes our approach and uh, sees sees things from the lens that we see it through, and maybe has a has a has a at, at times wider umbrella than some other than some other magazines. But I feel as though we can kind of justify our inclusion of you know, why we can have Lamb of God on the cover of one month and why we can have Napalm Death on the cover of the next or something like that. Some of the things I enjoy the most about Decibel is the Hall of Fame uh, features that you guys do. And um, so, I mean, basically, what's the criteria that you choose, that you assemble this Hall of Fame? Is it sort of, you know, just amongst yourselves? you guys decide? Is it, you know, by committee? Or you know, how do you guys depict those bands and records? Um... I actually have a Word document that has a ton of pitches from from my freelancers over the years, people trying to make their case for a particular record. Uh, I have it in my head, at least probably, probably for like the first 50 or 60, it was just, for me, it was like stuff that was no, no-brainers. Like, these all, they're just, I'm not, these aren't for discussion, these are just records that are, we're going to go in there. Uh, I've, I've definitely opened it up in the past couple of years to, to listen a little bit more to, uh, to other people's cases for records that maybe I don't own or records that didn't speak to me or, or, or part of a genre or subgenre that I wasn't uh, particularly interested in. <clears throat> but it's kind of, it's, it's an interesting process now because there's stuff that, you know, you look at and you think like, oh, that could work. And then you run up, the, I run up the flagpole with a few writers. I'll run, I'll run it up the flagpole with, with Nick Green, with Jay Bennett. Um, I may, I may rely on Gordon Conrad every once in a while for his opinion on things, um, and it's it's kind of a it's kind of a tight small brain trust of people who I value their opinions on certain records because you know somebody of a certain vintage and style can tell me why a Kill Switch Engage record matters, and then somebody of another vintage interest and style can tell me why a Judge record really matters. When they might, when each of them might not be necessarily my thing. Um, so, but it's all kind of that kind of stuff is dependent on people who we trust or I trust. Um, but in terms of the actual rules, they're pretty they're pretty basic. It's just you know we need to speak to everyone who played on the album, which immediately makes tons of records from consideration, uh, just due to either the passing of. Uh, uh, the person who played on a record, or uh, one member's unwillingness to talk, or bad blood between uh, former members, sometimes the inability, inability to actually find somebody who played on a record, even in this day and age when everybody is connected digitally one way or another. Um, so, and the record needs to be five years old, which is just an arbitrary number based on the. Uh, the rules for induction to the uh, Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, 
But generally, most of the records we do in Dr. Bodley around 10 years old and older. Um, but that's, that's basically it. it and, and one thing that, that it is going to change very soon, uh, up until this point, not, we've only inducted one record per artist. Like some of the, you know, obviously the classic important uh, touchstones of the genre, like Slayer or Black Sabbath or Metallica or whomever. Uh, to this point, we've only done one record from that. Uh, with issue number 100, we're going to be opening that up to where bands will now have multiple, will be eligible for multiple records in depth. And it was never a hard and fast rule, it was just something that was kind of unspoken. So let's get as many of these as possible. But my thinking with issue 100 is it's kind of like hitting the reset button and you can you can open things up a little differently. What were some of your favorite inductees, like personally? Personally, um, I mean, for me, I've only done, I've done three Hall of Fame. One of them is kind of a regrettable one. Uh, and that was Sepultura Roots, which we did really, really early. And for me personally, that's, I like the record. I think I like it more than most Sepultura fans do. But for it to not be beneath the remains or arise is just wrong. Um, and it's one of those, one of those regrets that would be clear soon. Um, but, that was an interesting experience, but the ones that I did, my personal favorite, and this is not going to, um, I don't think this is a record that everybody cares about, but Rollins Band, End of Silence, for me, was just like, being able to do a Hall of Fame on that, like, that record meant so much to me as a, a 16-year-old kid in 1992, hearing that, that record was just, that, that just changed, I, I mean, I was into heavy music, I was into all kinds of death metal and stuff before that but hearing that record I, I, it was just kind of like a I, I mean I, I know a lot of people view Henry Rollins as kind of a a motivational character for me at 16 that was something that really connected with me so to be able to do that and track down all those guys uh, that were no longer playing with him was really was really kind of awesome uh, but in terms of some of my other favorite ones that I haven't worked on I do find that the ones that are the most interesting and the ones that are the most are where there are kind of band conflicts. Um, one of my favorite ones ever is the Monster Magnet Dope to Infinity one, which is clearly uh, half of the band, half of the former band just not hating, or just hating on Dave Wingo and recount, recounting all these stories of all the bullshit that they put him through. And Dave Wingo is not holding back and just laying into them for you know, perceived slights or them not being up to stuff in, in his eyes. Uh, so that one's great. I mean, they're all they all have their charm. Even if it's a even if it's a record that I don't particularly connect with, uh, I think that I think that's a testament to the Hall of Fame is that you want to read these stories because pretty much every record every record that's ever made has some kind of interesting story about it. And if a record is in the Hall of Fame or it's even up for consideration in the Hall of Fame, there are enough people who hold that record highly. So kind of knowing that when you sit down and read them, I think it makes makes all of them just entertaining on their own, whether or not you you know have a 
you know, South of Heaven backpatch or something. You know, you're, you're still going to, you can still read it and get something out of it, I think. We're rolling into the end of the year, and um, a lot of uh, people look to Decibel, among other publications, for, uh, you know, year-end lists and whatnot and, you know, album of the year and all this kind of stuff. Um, do you have any uh, any of your own personal favorites that came out this year? Yeah, they don't always um, they don't always line up, uh, although they did last year. Uh, last year we got it right. Um, but the magazine isn't Not, not according to the Revolver, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, we got the wrong... You got the wrong path, path totality. You, it should have been the corn record, I guess. That was really incredible. That was one of the richest... There was so much humor and so much... Unintentional humor that just spoke volumes of the whole situation, but that's... I'll just I'll just leave it at that. But um, for, for me, um, this year, my favorite record of the year isn't even a metal record. It's, it's, it's Baroness's Yellow and Green. Um, and I absolutely love it, but... It's definitely a record I've listened to more than any other one this year. But there's stuff that, like, my personal favorite... A lot of my personal favorites did end up on the list of our top 40 albums of the year, which will be out in a couple weeks. Um, but, you know, for me personally, it's... I guess I'm kind of predictable at this point, since a lot of people know that my, my favorite bands are, think, are bands like Napalm Death and, and Paradise Lost, and both of those bands put out records this year. Uh, I also absolutely love the new Evoking record which came out Profound Lore earlier this year. Yes. Uh, um, they are they they're very high in our album review list and uh, I'm hoping that as a result some people who maybe haven't missed a boat on them for oh, 20 some years can begin to maybe tune in a little bit. Um, so there's that, there's um the Pink Destroyer record was great. Uh, I don't know. I, I kind of have to go back and and see see what I wrote down or what I what I like because it, it's interesting because there were bigger records this year too, some bigger bands that just that I've always liked that just for whatever reason the record hasn't connected with me. Um, it may have connected with our writers, and so it will be uh, you'll see it represented highly in the list. But for me personally. I haven't really gone back to some of them. But again, it's such a, I mean, the process of uh, listening to and consuming this kind of music, it, it takes a while. There's sometimes, sometimes there's records that I don't get for like a year, you know, or or, or I might not get a, a band that I like. I might not get their their record until they release another record and I go back and listen to that over um, So, Generally, I, I do think that there is a lot of crossover in my list and the magazine's list, but there's definitely things on our list that I don't care about that our writers um, are are deeply invested in. So you know, it's a it's one of those things where it's a it's it's a pseudo democracy, I guess I would I could call it that. That Evoking record is great, man. I um I, I've been aware of those guys for a long time, but it's only been. Um, very, and I would say in the last four years that I really started getting into them like heavily, and uh, that could be traced back to when um, the first uh, U.S. Warm Rot uh, show was with Evoking here in New York, and uh, 
it was a show that they just sort of last minute got thrown on. And I was driving those guys around, and that was the first time. I mean, got, I got really excited when I, I found out that they were playing with the book because they, they hardly ever play shows. And at that point, I thought they'd broken up, too. So it was awesome to see them. And ever since I saw them play that show, I've been, a you know, they're, they're on a pretty heavy rotation with me, and that new record is amazing. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, they they um, they hadn't played a lot of shows because they're – their old guitarist, uh, Nick Orlando, was just, first of all, he wasn't really into playing a lot of shows generally, and then I guess he moved to, I think he moved to North Carolina or something, I forget exactly where, I know I know Vince from The Woken was telling me, but when he moved, they got a, a new guitarist, Chris, and basically really ramped up their, their live performances, which is, I think, helping them tremendously. We, we added them, we put them on three dates of... Uh, this spring's Decibel Magazine tour, and they were the three shows that I actually attended. I made sure that the three dates that Evoken were playing were the three dates that I was going to see in Baltimore, Philadelphia, and New York. And they were incredible, and it was just, it was really gratifying for me personally to see them playing, especially the New York show at Irving Plaza, seeing like a full room of people hearing Evoken. You know what I mean? Like after all these years of listening to this, this band that just, that this underground this band that was underground in America playing a style that's largely ignored in America like kind of extreme doom or funeral doom or whatever you want to call it um, and European bands that have garnered all these accolades for it over the years um, just knowing all this stuff and being able to see them like lay waste to big large audiences was awesome Looking forward to seeing um, them, among others, uh, do the same thing at our hundredth issue show in January. Yeah, it's going to be a good show, man. I'm looking forward to it. We announce um, we announce the headliner tomorrow, but tomorrow will have come and gone by the time people hear this podcast. So it won't be that big of a won't be that big of a deal when you hear it in the podcast that Converge will be headlining that show. So. Yeah, this won't go up by tomorrow, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so they, they actually are playing this show. I heard some, uh, you know, just some scuttlebutt out there on the wire that there might they might not be doing the show. There's some conflict in Philly that they have another show within a month of that one or something like that. No, they had a they had a show uh, they had a show in Philly in January in in not January in November that oh, they okay. that we knew we knew beforehand that they were going to do. So we we held off on all the announcement until that show happened. So we didn't we didn't cannibalize any any ticket sales for them. But I mean, the truth of the matter is that I think the lineup uh, is even without Converge, I think the lineup is stacked. So for me, it's kind of like you know adding Converge to it is just like the, the proverbial cherry on top of this uh, extreme music Sunday. Yeah, you know, municipal waste. You know, Pig Destroyer, Repulsion, like that. Those those bands right there would probably fill the place, really, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the whole idea is just for this to be... I want every, I want everybody to just have fun. I want all the bands to have fun. I want uh, everybody who works for the magazine that will be there to have fun. Because we are, a lot of people are coming in. Jay Bennett's flying in for this show. Great, we'll be awesome. In, um, and it's just, you know, we're billing it as a celebration show, and that's what it should be. And I can't thank you, know, you and 
and the guys from Tombs and all the other bands were performing enough because, you know, I feel like that, that it's just been, I just felt a lot of gratitude in, like, anybody who's performing the show. Like, people want, the band want to play the show. And to me, that's, like, that's exciting. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, definitely, man. I was I was pretty stoked when you know I heard about you were considering us to be on the bill. You know, it was really quite an honor. I thought because you know I've always, like I said, I, I uh, usually don't read a lot of um, you know music related magazines. You know, like here and there, I'll like peruse you know Terrorizer. I mean, I used to read a lot more when there were you know when there was like Metal Maniacs was around and you know, that goth magazine, Propaganda. I don't know if you remember that one. I used to read, I used to read that. I have almost all the issues of that magazine. Yeah, it's, it's, it's way better than, uh, than Gothic Beauty or whatever. Uh, is that a porno site or something? <laughs> it's gothic Beauty. Well, one of the coolest things about propaganda was like they actually had, um, like you could read about, you know, this mortal coil, and also there was like, like Guns N' Roses appeared in there too, and uh, you know, Fields of a Nephilim, and you know, there was like some. It wasn't strictly like goth that was in there. It was a lot of different, different stuff, you know. And uh, I, don't know, I really enjoyed that magazine. But, yeah, I think I, they would they would cover some of the neo folk stuff too. You know, some of the World Serpent releases, and and it was. I mean, I, I think that like I think that that kind of approach and that having like you know obviously working within a niche but keeping the umbrella open wide enough to not alienate things that are maybe maybe on the periphery. It's I think of of like what the core your audience listens to. I think it's important. I think I think not maybe maybe challenging your audience a little bit or giving them some credit. You know, saying look, I know. You like metal. I like metal. We all like metal. But I think you might like this too. Why don't you check this out? And you know, occasionally there, there. I'm not going to act like there isn't a knuckle-dragging contingent of our readership that are bummed when we feature anything but Phil Anselmo. Um, but the majority of readers are like psyched to kind of like look into something that's maybe not. That's tangentially really just extreme metal, and you know when you talk about propaganda, I feel like they were they were doing the same thing just within a different context and a different subject. Yeah, totally. I mean, there was you know, there's always been bands like my my um, my dying bride and you know typo negative and whatnot who were you know had almost equal amounts of fans like across the board. You know, they had like death metal fans, extreme metal fans, and also these sort of bat cave types. You know. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah. So once again, man, thanks for um, enjo- you know, agreeing to do this podcast and everything. Um, you know, I'd like to like to personally thank thank you and the Decibel staff for um, inviting us to play the big show in January as well. And uh, you know, we're going to be debuting a bunch of new songs, so I'm pretty stoked about that. That's awesome. No, man. I again, uh, I don't want to turn this into. You know, us just blowing each other for the end here, but you know, it's 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 really it, I'm really excited uh, to have number one, maybe two hundred issues, 
just being able to put together a 150 show and to have the quality of the bands and the qualities of people in the bands performing uh, that night. It's, it's going to be special and awesome and it's just an honor to be able to, to put it all together and, and work with guys like you and, and guys like the new Waste guys and the Repulsion guys and the guys and the Vulcan guys. It's, it's going to be special. And the Pig Destroyer guys, I don't want to yeah, it was good. That, that new record's unless rad. I, unless I get an annoyed email from Blake Harris. That new record's sick, man. It's probably um, one of my favorite Pig Destroyer records that have come out in the last few years, actually. And um, Have you heard of the band Atriarch? Oh, yeah, yeah. The band that Blake used to be in before Pig Destroyer. Oh, no, 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 no. no this, this, not, is not a total, this is a... There's a band from the West Coast called Atriarch. Oh, Atriarch. I thought you said, I thought you said Triarch. Oh, no, no, no. A, yeah, okay. Atriarch, and um, they have that split. The band's from uh, Portland, right? Uh, I think they're from either Portland or, like, the Bay Area, maybe. I think, well, they have Scott, Scott, uh, Kelly. Kelly's son is in the band, but I think they're, I think they're up in the Northwest. Yeah, I absolutely, the funny thing about them, I love uh, their first record, Forever Laid to Rest, I think it was called. Yeah. Um, because it reminded me of not to get, like, on a funeral doom tip again, but the guitar tones reminded me of Thurgothon, which is, like, again, no, another one of those bands for me that's, like, super important, super special. Um, and it's a band that, you know, ironically, the Vulcan took their name from. Um, but the guitar tones reminded me of that. I hadn't heard anybody sound like that in, like, you know, 15, 16 years. So I got really into that, and I love that record. And I uh, just got the new one uh, um, a couple months ago from Profound Lore. And, and originally, I just wasn't feeling it because it, it, it seemed like it was a little more gothy than, than the first one. But over the past couple of weeks, it's been really like, it, it's been really connected. I've been really, really liking it. So, so yeah, to answer, to have an incredibly long answer to your question, yes, I've heard of it. Yeah, they, they also have a split with that band Alaric, too, which is um, probably. That record is on my list for the year, man. It's the yeah. Atriarch Alaric split. Are you familiar with Alaric? Yeah, yeah. They did. Um, is that on Twenty Bucks Band? Yes. That, that's the, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like that too. Um, I, I probably lean more towards Atriarch, but but that's that's a band Alaric. I'm I'm curious to see kind of what the what they do next, how they evolve. Yeah. Oh, have you heard of that Serpentine Path record? That's crushing. Okay. Uh -oh. <laughs> I listen to it. I like. I, I really, really loved on our trance. And are okay, I guess. It doesn't. It doesn't. It, it's fine. I don't like it as much as some people. But all of my friends who have excellent taste, people like Dave Whitty, freaking out over the Serpentine Path record. I don't get it. Really? Yeah. I, I, it's fine. I listen to it. It's fine. It's good. Maybe I just need to. And I try, like, every time somebody, like, mentions it to me and freaks out about it, and I go back to it and spin it again, for whatever reason, I listen to it, and I was just, I'm just like, I wish this was on Earthly Trance. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah but they, you love it. You're all about it. They played their very first show with us um, a couple weeks ago at the uh, the last date of that tour we just finished up with 16. I uh, was here in New York and um, at, at uh, St. Vitus. And uh, that was uh, Serpentine Pat's first show. And it was fucking insane. It was great. 
So good. So the dude from does the dude from Ramsey's live in the states now? Or? That that I don't know. Um, you know, possibly, but uh, they also have the guy from Winter to playing second guitar too now. Really? So it's like two guitar. That's what made it crushing. It was a second guitar player. <laughs> It was so good, man. I mean, just give it another chance. Maybe if you see him live, you know, and um, you know, it might it might sway you, you know, and maybe their next record will grab you. But like, I, I really enjoy their their album and live. They were brilliant. I thought, and um, yeah, I'm glad there's a band on between us and them. That's how good they were. I thought, <laughs> you know, yeah, I, dude, I wanna I wanna be on board because everything about it, something I should be like all about. And all of my friends whose taste I have tons of respect for are all about it. So um, I'll hopefully get there. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, anyway, man, thank you very much. And um, and I'll see you uh, in person in January. Yeah, well, it'll be the next time I set foot in Philadelphia. It'll be January 19th. So how long? Where are you living now? I live in Northern Virginia. Uh, and... Uh, an undisclosed location for any crazy people out there. Um, but I'm about an hour south of D.C. And it's nice and quiet. And it's a nice place to raise a family. And it's a good place if you have a 13-month-old little girl like I do. Um, and it's, it's great. I get into Philadelphia. I used to get in there every month uh, on production deadlines and I haven't visited it as frequently lately because I can do so much stuff remotely and because uh, a 13-month-old still requires constant maintenance. Sure. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm down here and it's great that I do love Philadelphia and I suspect as, uh, as my little girl gets a little bit older, I'll be traveling more frequently back there. Yeah, I mean, it's not that far of a drive, really. What, three hours, yeah, maybe? I mean, the thing is, like, when I go in, like, I, I take the train uh, just because parking in Philadelphia for consecutive days is just ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but it's probably, it's about like a four-hour commute by train. It isn't a huge deal, but you need to, you know, it's just the overnight stuff that, that I try to limit. But, but yeah, I'll be in, I'll have the whole family with me back uh, January 19th for the, for the show. And yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's one of those things where I... Uh, I wish there was more time to do all the preparation stuff that I'd like to do uh, before it gets here. But at the same time, I just I can't wait for it to get here. It's going to be it's going to be great. If we make it past December twenty first, that is, you know. Oh, is that the end of the world? Yeah, that's well, that's the planetary alignment. Oh, what's good now? Since I haven't done any of my Christmas shopping, and uh, I do not plan to now until December twenty second. Either that or have an early Christmas. Maybe celebrate Hanukkah this year. Yeah, if you celebrate Hanukkah, you're fine. Um, if you're just a, a regular, boring old Christmas person. I'm not sure when Kwanzaa will be. Uh, man, look at Hopefully before the 25th. <laughs> Alright, brother, I'm going to end this. Cool.